Well, good morning again. We are, as we turn to God's Word, continuing in our series uh, through the book of Genesis. And uh, more precisely this week, we are looking at part two of Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. This is uh, the, the story, the account of the Tower of Babel. So a, a commonly known uh, you know, account in the Bible that we see here. But what I want to show us and remind you even is that as we saw last week with the Tower of Babel, this, this really was a, a world-shaping event. Everything really changed here at the Tower of Babel. It's, it's nine verses, right? Nine verses, and yet so much about the world changes. Uh, we talked about it again last week that, that languages uh, changed. All of a sudden there were multiple languages. And from those languages, there were nations. And so we just need to remember, this is, this is huge. This is a huge event that happens with the Tower of Babel. And we'll see more of that as we go along. But I just want to put that in perspective. I'm going to uh, pray, and then my plan is to, to review a little bit of what we studied last week, and then look at how God re responds to that. So let's, let's bow our heads in prayer uh, to our great God. Father God, last week... From this account that you've given us, we saw that the sinfulness, the rebellion of the people of Babel. And God, through that, we, we saw ourselves as in a mirror. We saw our own sinfulness. We saw our own uh, tendency toward rebellion. And God, I pray that, that today, as we study your response, you wouldn't let us forget the ways that we have treated you, the ways that we have considered you. But instead, let us, let us remember these things, but then look at the way that you respond to this type of rebellion. God, let us learn a little more about your character today. Let us learn a little bit more of how glorious and trustworthy you really are. God, help us to live our lives radically different, because we see who you are even in this passage. I pray this in your Son's name. Amen. All right, so what did we look at last week with the Tower of Babel? I'll read for you uh, Genesis 11, verses 1 through 4. This is the, the main section we looked at. It said, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build, build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So that, that's what we looked at last week. We looked at uh, the rebellion going on of these people. And I said it's really not so much what they were doing the fact that they're building a city and the fact that they're building a tower, it wasn't those acts in and of themselves that were evil. It was this heart attitude of rebellion against God. And we should remember, by the way, this is uh, pretty close after the flood account had happened. This, it hadn't been that long afterwards. Obviously, the population had grown, but this rebellion starts again. And I'll just uh, quickly list for you the, the four different ways that they were rebelling against God. First, they were rebellious against reliance upon God. They didn't depend on God. They wanted to be totally self-sufficient. 
And we saw that three times they say, let us, let us, let us. And then they want to build for ourselves, to make a name for ourselves. They're very self-reliant rather than leaning on the, the all-sufficient creator and provider. So that was the first way they were rebellious. The second way was they were rebellious against the worship of God. They were rebellious against the worship of God. Up to this point in history, people had turned away from God, but they had not necessarily set up for themselves other gods. And as we, we looked at uh, last week, most likely this tower that they built wasn't just a neat little tall building. It was a ziggurat, which would have been a place for idol worship. They had created gods for themselves because they had removed God from their lives. So they create gods for themselves to give them some sense of security, some sense of control uh, in seeking blessing over their lives. And so they worship uh, gods that are not God. The third way they rebel is they rebel against humility under God. It is the creation saying, I want to be like God, just like uh, Eve in the, the garden. Uh, they said there, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. And that, that was, let us make ourselves glorious. Let us bring honor to ourselves rather than making a name for the God that they were created to glorify. They had this pride in their hearts, and that was the motivation for building these things. And then finally, the, the fourth reason was, they were rebellious against the will and command of God. We remember in Genesis uh, 1.28, God says to, to Adam and Eve, uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's spread out, fill all the different places of the earth. Again, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, after the flood, God says the exact same thing to Noah and to his uh, sons. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But these people want to make a city. They want to make a tower, it says, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They are directly going against the will and the command of God. So that's their rebellion against the reliance upon God, the worship of God, humility under God, the will and command of God. They're rebellious in every way, and that's what we saw last week. So the question now is, how is God going to respond? How is God going to respond to this, this organized, concentrated in one area, rebellion against Him? And really, you know, we've probably, I'm not, I don't know about everyone's story here, but most of you, if you've grown up in church or with a Christian family, you know what happens in the Tower of the Story, uh, in, the, in the story of the Tower of Babel. So it won't be too surprising for you. But what we need to think about is, how would the original readers have read this? You know, when they, when they didn't know how the story ends. Well, let's think about that for a second. Just previous to this, uh, just a few chapters back in chapter 6, it described how the world was becoming corrupt. I mean, very similar to, even to the corruption we're seeing here. Uh, we see that the, this power and people becoming renowned, bringing this glory for themselves. And so what does God do? Well, God sends a flood to destroy all the wicked people on the face of the earth. Gone, wiped out, dead, except for Noah, his three sons, his wife, and his wife's sons. God wipes out everyone. 
That is how God has just responded to this type of rebellion. But after the flood, in in Genesis chapter 8 and 9, God makes a covenant uh, to Noah and to the whole world, really, that he will never again judge the, the world, the wickedness of the world, with a worldwide flood. And he even goes a little further and says uh, in Genesis 8:22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so the idea there was is life will sort of go on as it has always been, at least in a worldwide sense. Uh, God will not uh, bring anything upon the world that, that destroys these patterns. That was part of his covenant. And we know that at some point he says, uh, what does it say, while the earth remains, the, the point there is, is there is going to come a day of judgment that God does intercede in a worldwide manner once again. Uh, but we also know that that will not happen until God sends his Savior into this world. In Genesis 3.15, God had promised that there would be an offspring of the woman that would deal with Satan, would deal with sin, and and all that that he brought into this world, all that that mankind had fallen into in our rebellion. So God had made these covenant promises. I'll send a Savior. I I won't destroy the world. It will go on with this pattern until the final judgment. But here again, in chapter 11... We see that the population is growing after this flood. The population is growing, and as the population grows, so does the rebellion. Not, not only does uh, are people turning to rebellion, but they're actually gathering together. They're multiplying this rebellious effect. You put one fool in a room, and you've got foolishness. You put two fools in a room, and you've got that much more. They will, they will play off of each other, and that's what's going on in this city. You have wicked people enticing others to do even more wickedness. So that's what's going on. And so the tension is, okay, the world has gone right back to the pre-flood wickedness and rebellion. Is God going to just wipe out the world again as he did? I mean, if he did that, he would be going against his covenant promise. How can he possibly do that? But on the other hand, Is God just going to allow this rebellion to continue? Is he going to allow this multiplying effect to continue where they're they're all gathered together, uh, pushing each other, uh, you know, enticing each other into sin? Is he going to allow that to happen? Has God boxed himself into a corner? Well, I can't judge them, but now they're being rebellious and I I can't do anything about it. You know, what's God going to do? That's this tension that we see in this text. Can God act in this situation? So that's what we're going to look at today. What is God's response to this rebellion at Babel? What's God's response? So I'm going to read for for you now verses 5 through 9 of chapter 11, and we'll see God's response, and then we'll we'll go more slowly and look at what God has done here. Starting in verse 5, it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, 
so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So that's what we see. God, God responds to this rebellion. But the question is, what, what can we learn from the way that God responds to this rebellion? Again, there was this, this tension here of how can God possibly respond in a just uh, but, but truthful way because he's made these covenants. And so what I want to show you as we go through this is just some of God's character. Some of God's character because we know, even in some of the songs we sing this morning, God is unchanging. So if God was these ways back in Genesis 11, we can bank on it today that he is still these ways today, right now, whatever God's calling you to do. So I've got two things I want to show you, really three things, but anyway, two things I want to show you of how God responds to this rebellion at, at Babel. Number one, you have this in your notes if you are following along there. Babel displays God's power. Babel displays God's power. Uh, th these are just things that the more I look at it, the more I think about it, the more I realize I believe this is what, what the human author, but more importantly, God, the, the author that inspired Moses to write this, is trying to get across. He's trying to get ac across God's great power. Let me show you this from the text. Verse 5, it says, so, so God sees there, you know, or there's this rebellion going on. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. The Lord came down. Well, we'll start there. The Lord came down to see uh, this city and this tower. We are supposed to see some irony here, okay? That, that's what I want to get across to you. They're, they're, we're supposed to see some sad irony here. Remember, they're, they're building this tower with its top that's supposedly in the heavens. Let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. They're reaching up with all their might into the heavenlies, uh, in, uh, reaching up for deity in, in some senses. This is all their power, all their ingenuity right here in this tower. And yet it says here, God has to come down to see what they are doing. They're trying to raise themselves up as high as they can get, but God still has to come down to see what they're doing. I'll explain this a little more. Could God see them from heaven? Did God have to actually literally come down in order to do this? Well, of course God can see them from heaven. God sees everything. I'll just give you some examples. Job 28, 24, Job says, God looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Uh, Proverbs 15, 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. His eyes are in every place, it says. Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I, God, cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? It's quite clear, uh, any understanding you have of God, that he didn't actually have to come down to see uh, what was going on here. So what we know is there's some sort of a device. There, the, the, the author is trying to get something across to us. Well, again, the point is, these people were trying to raise themselves up, up into the heavens, this great tower, 
and God looks down and says, oh, how cute. They built a little tower. What is that, a teepee? Oh, okay. I mean, that's really what's going on here. I believe that we're, we're going to make ourselves great, a name for ourselves. We're going to reach up into the heavens, and God says, oh, I'm going to come down from the actual heavens and see what you little ants are doing. Uh, that's kind of what's going on. And you even see there uh, at the end of the verse, it says, the Lord came down to see the city in the tower which the children of man had built. The children of man. That's literally children of Adam is the same word being used there. What's the point? You guys are nothing but children, offspring of Adam. You are creation. You are not the creator. You're simply children of man. You're nothing more. So God has to come down to see this seemingly great work from the human point of view to see what these humans, mere mortals, are doing. This is showing the infinite greatness and power of God compared to the lowness of these people. Uh, listen to this. This is uh, later on God's speaking to um, idolatrous Israel, and this is the way he speaks to them. This is uh, Isaiah 40, verses 21 through 23. I love this. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, that's God, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. That is how God talks about humans. Now, again, we, we have to think about this. In, in, in this Isaiah instance, are, are, are humans really as lowly as grasshoppers? Could we say, oh, the grasshopper and a human, they have the same value, the same worth, the same abilities? Well, obviously not. We, we know that, that God has taken special care, making each and every human, knitting us in our mother's wombs, and then, not only that, he has endowed each and every human being with his image. We are image bearers of God, and that is an incredible honor. I would never say we are anything like a grasshopper. But the point in this passage is, the point in this passage is, in comparison to God, we are like grasshoppers. We are infinitely closer to the grasshopper than we are to God. That, that's the point here. Uh, it says there these princes uh, are as nothing. They, uh, I can't remember how it words it. The, ru the rulers of the earth as, as emptiness. Th these are real people. They have real power, but compared to God, they are as emptiness. They are as nothing compared to God. And that's what's going on in these verses. God has to come down to the city to see the city and the tower which the children of man, mere mortals, had built. This power of God, this comparison being made. It goes on to say here, verse uh, 6, we'll look a little more at this, power of God. It says, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. That may be a little bit shocking right there after what I just said, right? These people are nothing but grasshoppers. There is emptiness compared to God. And God's here saying, that, look, there are one people, they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they'll do. 
nothing that they do that they propose to do will now be impossible for them has god met his match in this unified group of people is there nothing he can do to stop their rebellion again there is a bit of irony being used here god says these things uh they I'm sorry, uh, this is only the beginning of what they'll do. Uh, nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. But then we see in the very next verse, verse 7, which we'll look at more closely, all it takes is for God to just, boom, act. And everything that they have proposed to do is ruined. You see at the end of verse, uh, I believe, 9, they left off building the city. Or maybe it's the end of verse 8. God says they, they have this power. This is only the beginning of what they'll do. And it's kind of setting up this tension uh, they can do anything that they propose to do. Nothing will be impossible. And then at the mere breath of God, maybe we could think of it, he changes everything for them. That, my friends, is power. That is power. I love in Job uh, 42, 1 through 2, uh, Job is now answering God after God has corrected him. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. I don't want to discount it. These people did have, have great power, great ingenuity. Uh, they, they, they were powerful. They had great strength. But God was more powerful. God had more strength, infinitely more strength. God was powerful. So that's, that's, that was point number one. Babel displays God's power. Babel was an opportunity for God to flex his muscles for us against the best that humanity could do. This is what's going on here. God is putting his power on display. God's plans will truly never be thwarted. He won't be pushed around, and he always comes out on top. That's our God. That's the character of the God of Genesis 11. That's the character of God today. We have a powerful God, and it was displayed in a great display. If you're able to look for the irony, able to look for these uh, inconsistencies almost, we see God's power. But, as we'll see in number two here uh, in your notes, God is more than a, a muscle-head jock with, uh, with no brains. He's not just someone who wields a big sword, but can't think through what he's doing. Okay? And that's number two. Babel displays God's wisdom. Babel displays God's wisdom. The more I, I thought about what's going on here in Babel, the more I studied it, the more I, I studied further on in the Bible to see these same strings, these threads, these theological threads. We talked about that some last week. The more I, I followed these threads, the more I realized God's incredible wisdom in the way that he handled this here at Babel. It's incredible. You remember, uh, we, we set this up a moment ago, how is God going to respond to, to this rebellion, you know? It, we said he had made this covenant not to destroy the world in, in the way that he had, that it would go on until final judgment after a Savior has come into the world. But then, is he only going to show mercy? Is he only going to tolerate wicked mankind? Are his hands tied? But here we see 
God act in such a way that he does not go in any way against his covenants, but that wickedness is restrained. We've got to kind of frame this a little bit. What, what's really the problem here? What's, what's really the problem? Why was it that th- these people could do anything that they proposed to do? Why, why was that? It's not only that their hearts were wicked, but it was that they were unified. It said they spoke one language and they were all together. And that gave them an advantage, a capacity that we really know nothing of because they had unbounded freedom to do whatever they wanted and and really unbounded ability to do what they wanted to do because of their ability to communicate with one another. They were able to contrive and, and, and... engage wickedness without any human power to stop them. Let me frame this for you. Let's think Nazi Germany for a moment, okay? Nazi Germany uh, were incredibly powerful and incredibly wicked. They were doing things uh, to to humans that that were horrific. They were running experiments on other humans uh, while alive or killing them in order to do those experiments. They were seeking to wipe out whole types of people. Uh, we call them, you know, races, uh, a race of people, the Jews and also the, 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 the black people they were trying to wipe out. And so they're, they're doing all these things. What would have happened with Nazi Germany had there been no other nations to stop them? The world would be a very different place today had Nazi Germany been able to just do whatever wickedness they wanted to do with their great power. And that, that's kind of the idea here. God says, said there in verse 6, nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. I mean, that, that seemed like that was going to happen. If you study uh, the, the wars with, with uh, the Nazis, I mean, it looked like they were going to be able to do whatever they wanted to do. So here in, in Babel, they're getting more wicked. They had no restraint, nothing, no natural barrier to keep them from going into more and more uh, wickedness. So, God says there, verse 7, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one, another, one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, which means confusion, uh, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So to intervene, to to thwart this plan of God, rather than just allow it to continue or to go against his covenant, God simply, you could say, confuses their languages. He throws a wrench in all of their plans. I mean, really, we're just so familiar with this story. Can you imagine today if right now none of you understood a word that I was hearing and, and we just all had these different languages? Our church is probably not going to last real long, right? We're not going to have much ability to work together, to, to, to talk together. We're going to get angry at one another. That's exactly what happened here. It would have been absolute chaos had their languages become confused while they're trying to build this city. People would have been, you know, furious with one another. They would have been disorganized and unable to, uh, you know, communicate the simplest things because of what God did here. And because of that, it says, the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. 
So unable to communicate with everyone else, they dispersed over the face of the earth. I believe the understanding here is, just from what we see, is that it was, it was more these families, they could still understand one another. These families, these smaller clans could still understand one another, but because they couldn't understand the others, they, they end up separating and, and going their different ways. They, they're like, you know what, we can't, we can't work with them, we can't get along with them, let's just go over here. And God spreads them over the face of the whole earth. I would say some people believe that this was more of a miraculous spreading, that he, you know, picked them up and set them other places. I, I don't really see the need for that here, but either way, God stops their rebellion, this unified, unrestrained rebellion, by changing their languages. So, what's amazing about this, too, the, the really wise part is, so God, you know, with the flood, he wipes out the wicked people, keeps one family, these eight people, and he repopulates. But the exact same thing happened again, right? And that's what we're looking at here in 11. Uh, history repeated itself. So what's to keep this Babel from happening again? Well, this confusion of languages was not a momentary thing. It, it is a continual thing, uh, really, to the end of time, that there will always be nations, there will always be other people groups that restrain each other's evil. Again, Nazi Germany. When they gathered together their power, mustered their might, and tried to do their worst, other nations, such as the United States, uh, you know, you think of um, United Kingdom, even Soviet Union, all, all these people, the allies, went against them and said, no, you will not carry out that wickedness, not on our watch. And they stopped them. God has built into human history this natural barrier, this natural limitation for keeping Babel from ever happening again. That there will be a day at the, the end of time, the, the end times, when there's a more unified governmental system, but that's when the judgment's coming. <laughs> that, that's when we know things are, are uh, coming to an end. Until then, God has put this barrier in the way. What wisdom of God. He doesn't allow this rebellion to continue. He doesn't allow this, this unified uh, uh, movement to multiply, and he doesn't go against his covenant. He's a covenant keeper, and he's a peacekeeper. He does it all. That is God's wisdom on display. Could you have thought of that plan? My plan would be the, another flood. Let's do it again. You know, like, and then, but then a uh, hundred years later, they'd be in the exact same boat again. But God's wisdom, God's wisdom here is that he would keep his promises, that he would keep uh, the, the peace in a way by, by these hedges, and that it would last for all time. That's God's wisdom on display. There are, there are so many things, so many of these threads I want to pull out for you, but I, I don't have time. I just want to show you a few of even more wisdom that we see of God here. This confusion of languages that happened at Babel, you might remember, was temporarily reversed at Pentecost. You guys remember that? That's the whole idea of what happens uh, on, at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, there are people from all over the world that have come to Jerusalem. They're, they're all there with all these different languages. It lists uh, many, many different languages. And then the disciples, or the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples. They go out and begin speaking, and everyone is hearing the gospel 
in their own language. God confused the languages at Babel, and God made sense of confusion right there at Pentecost. This was a, a temporary thing. It was a temporary reversal. But what did God accomplish there? Well, you, you go to the end of that Pentecost passage, and there were many who were added to the kingdom that day. People were saved. They were brought into trusting God and what he had done. And not only that, because of this reversal, these people who had these other languages eventually went home. They eventually told other people about this same gospel. They were spreading. They were the first missionaries, uh, in, in some sense, uh, by the way that they are sent home with the gospel in their own language. That was the wisdom and power of God on display. He can fuse the languages. He can make sense of the languages when it suits him, when it is for his glory and the good of his people. And we even think of this, this Babylon. I, I told you there, there will come a day that, that this uh, insurgence rises again, and it, it'll be called Babylon, which is, again, the same word in Hebrew, Babylon, Babylon. They're, they're really the, the same thing. Revelations 18.2. If you wonder what will happen when, this, when they uh, come back, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. That doesn't mean they'll actually be called Babylon, by the way, in the future. This, it's, it's just being used for that type of governmental wicked system. <clears throat> fallen, fa fallen is Babylon the Great. Then verses 7 and 8. As she, that's Babylon, glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Babylon, again, in this end time, will think they can do whatever they want. We see this same pattern of they're gaining momentum, they're gaining momentum, they're gaining momentum. And this passage says, in a single day, God will pour out his wrath, his justice. Boom, you guys think you got momentum? You're done. You're done. That, that's how God acts. That's how this story ends uh, for, for this type of uh, governmental system. And it's a be another beautiful thing, this, this thread we'll see through Scripture. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. Listen to this. This is a, a vision of heaven that John sees. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Let's pause. Where did nations come from? This passage that we just looked at. From every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages. Where did languages come from? This passage right here. So, uh, that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These people from all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all languages will be glorifying God. There will be people, yes, in Hebrew, the, 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 the Jewish language, yes. There will be people in English, yes. There will be people in Spanish, in French, and I could list languages, but I'll make myself look foolish. Um, 
on, on my lack of knowledge of languages, <laughs> you know, God will be glorified in each of those languages. Listen to this as well, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Remember, they wanted to make a name for themselves, Babel. Therefore, this is it, Philippians, therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus, him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus gets the name that these people were looking for. He gets the glory. People confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. This is amazing. This is, this is what happens with these languages. This is what happens. Uh, God's final response to Babel will be these things. It, it's so amazing. God, God is universally glorious, we see here, because of uh, Revelation, where all these tribes and peoples and languages... God, God is universally glorious because of what we see there in Philippians 2. Every knee bow, every tongue confess. God is not an American God. He's, he's not just a, an Israeli God. He's not, God is universally great. He's universally worthy of our praise and adoration. And that's exactly what he will get. And as I mentioned before, this passage shows that God is a covenant-keeping God. He made this covenant uh, to, to Noah. I will not destroy the world in this way. The patterns will go on, and he keeps it. God keeps his, his covenant in this powerful and wise way. God keeps it. Well, why does that matter for us? What, 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 what dealings does that have to do with us with covenants, you know? We don't really think that way. Well, we've got to think, what other covenants does God make? You have the Abrahamic covenant, a people and a land, you know, um, there's more to it, but uh, the Mosaic covenant, God tells the, the people of God, Israel, to follow the law, and they'll receive this abundant blessing from God. You have the Davidic covenant, God will make an eternal dynasty on David's throne. And then finally, we come to the new covenant. The new covenant. What's the new covenant? Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, so chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their, with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's uh, the Mosaic covenant. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So that was a a covenant that they could break, and it no longer held water for them, basically. And then verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and, and, each, his, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Listen to this. For I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. That's this, this, this new covenant that's coming. 
Well, what's that going to look like? What's that going to look like that he'll put his law on? How is he going to forgive these sins and remember our iniquities no more? Luke twenty two twenty, 20. We, we quote this often. And he took the bread. He took bread, Jesus says. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, or Jesus, I'm sorry, Jesus didn't say this. This is talking about what Jesus did. And Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. How do we take part in this covenant? What, what is this covenant for us? How are our sins remembered no more? How are we forgiven our iniquities? Well, because Jesus' body was broken. Jesus' blood was poured out. God was a covenant keeping God. He kept it with Noah. He kept it with Abraham. He kept it with, with David and even Moses, even though Israel, you know, broke that covenant. And he kept it with Jesus. Ezekiel 36, 26 adds even more, I'll put my spirit within them. That covenant was kept. It was bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. That's why it matters to us. And when you think about it, God continues to make promises to us in the New Testament, and there's even uh, many in the Old Testament that we can say, that, that's a promise to me as well. That applies to me as well. God makes these promises. God says, I will do these things. I will be these things for you. And we can know from passages like this that God is a promise-keeping God. He's a powerful God. He's a wise God. You can trust Him. As we come to this communion table here at the end of our service, I know that there are some in here who you are still in rebellion, just like the people of Babel. You, you believe that, that you can continue in your sin, you can continue in your rebellion against God, and nothing will happen. I can guarantee you, on the day that their languages were confused, they were not expecting it. They were doing things just like the day before, and the day before, and the day before in their rebellion, and then God's hand came down. And then we read in the end in Revelation, they've built this city, nothing will ever touch me, says Babylon. But in a day, God's judgment comes upon them. But we know on the other hand, that, that God has made a way for us to, to not rebel against him. We can even have forgiveness for our past rebellion. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, and the life through which we can come to the Father you can repent to God. You can trust Him. You can turn from your rebellion and turn to the Savior. He is wise. He is powerful. He is the source of joy. The source of the thing you are looking for is this God, this Jesus. And there are many of us who have already trusted that Jesus, but we live our lives powerless. We live our lives afraid. We, we, we live in many ways, just as the rest of the world does, chasing our own joy, our own security. We don't, we don't really get out of our comfort zone. And I would just say from passages like this, where we see the power, the wisdom, the covenant-keeping of God, let, let's trust God. Let's go all out, all in for God. Let's get out of our comfort zones. The same one who said, go therefore and make disciples, said, I will be with you always to the end of the age. I will pour out my spirit upon you and you will be my witnesses. That's us. 
Let's listen to him. Let's believe him. And let's go do it. Let's stop living like the world. Let's stop being the neighbors of Babel that just say, hmm, they should change their ways. Let's go tell them about the Savior. Let's live for Jesus. Let's pray.